Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this special Times Red Box event. I'm Matt Shorty, the editor of the Times Red Box. The award-winning uh, political email from the Times that is now available exclusively to all Times subscribers. You can sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. Um, thank you for so many of you turning out. Thank you for staying, unlike the people who came in, took the food, took two mugs and then left. <laughs> uh, we're glad that uh, you decided to stay. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, Emily Thornwey, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, who, when she leaves here, has got to go straight to do a speech. So um, I've been told the rule is no selfies afterwards. She's got to leave the room immediately. But we'll, so we'll, we'll talk a bit about um, what you're going to say in your speech later on. But I, wanted to, I want to start talk by talking about you. OK. And your, your background. And quite often in politics, people talk about backstories and... You know, they've got the perfect backstory. And actually, you're quite often not included in that. Tell us a bit about your upbringing and, and what it was like. I suppose I've had a fairly mixed background. And you can interpret my background in different ways. On the one hand, I was born into a, a fairly uh, privileged middle-class background in Guildford. Um, my father was a lawyer and my mother had trained to be a teacher. Um, and then when, my, when I was seven and my brother was five and my other brother was three, my father left and he disappeared. Um, and, and, uh, and we suddenly had no money. Um, and I remember... You but you know, mean you, that you really didn't have any money? We didn't have any money yeah. at all. And, um, and so it was really hard for my mum because you know, she had these three little children and she was... I don't think she was even 30 by that stage, you know? And she suddenly had to kind of cope with all of that. And it was in the 60s and there weren't, this didn't kind of happen very often, you know. And so in the end, the money, you know, we, the mortgage hadn't been paid and, and the bills had come in and everything. And I remember the, the bailiffs turned up and in the 60s they wore bowler hats and, uh, and we were chucked out. And, um, and there was a local Labour councillor, because there were Labour councillors in Guildford. Um, there was a local Labour councillor who, who saved us, who got us into social housing and into a council house um, on a big estate just outside of Guildford, it was a place called Belfields. And, uh, and we moved there and, we, and mum couldn't work because the children were too young and there wasn't the childcare available then. Yeah, so we lived on benefits and people used to give us clothes and boxes of food. I remember they used to give us, there was this one particular family used to give us Campbell's meatballs. We hated Campbell's meatballs. And mum used to keep them in the cupboard under the stairs. So if we wouldn't eat our supper, she'd go, you're going to have the Campbell's meatballs. If you <laughs> so it was hard. It was very hard. And I think that I was probably a very disturbed child and my mother found it very difficult to cope. Uh, we all failed our 11 plus, went to the local secondary modern, which was attached to the estate, where the expectation was that like you had to do, like I could only do five O-levels and two of them had to be in technical subjects. You know, you weren't expected to, to go on and do A-levels. You weren't expected to go to university. I spoke to my careers master at one point and I said, what do you expect me to do? 
with my life. What do you think? And he said, you could always visit people in prison. <laughs> and in a way, I did. I mean, I became a criminal barrister. I visited people in prison, but I didn't think it was the way that he expected. And then I had a big row with my mum when I was 15 and got chucked out or I ran away from home. It depends kind of which one of us you spoke to. Um, <laughs> and I ended up in London with my dad and I went to a comprehensive called Burlington Danes in the West End of London and yeah, just by Wormwood Scrubs. And, and then when I was 17, my dad went to New York for the weekend and he got a job with the UN and he didn't come back. <laughs> so, which is, I mean, at the time, you know, you're 17, you know, children kind of put up with anything, really. Um, and he paid the bills. And as far as I was concerned, it was great. I had a house, I had a car, but I was so lonely. And it was really hard. You know, I remember my phone, my, my, my fridge breaking down at one point, ringing Capital Helpline and asking them. I said, my fridge is broken down. What do I do? And they said, get it fixed. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't know, you know. And only afterwards did I find out that, like, one of my best friend's parents were trying to adopt me because I was kind of just wild. I was this wild child, you know. Anyway, I got through my A-levels and then I went to, to Kent and did a law degree, although that was only technical. I was really doing politics and, uh, and the radio station, and then went on to be a barrister. <laughs> and uh, I met my husband at bar school. And I think when he met me, I was a really angry little bundle. You know, I was like, I was raging against the world. And, uh, and he put up with me and calmed me down and has always loved me. And that was like, it really helped me to kind of get myself kind of back on track. To what extent do you think within the Labour Party, because because of the way that you sound, people make assumptions about you, mm. which the story you've just told mm. doesn't bear that out. Well, you know, I was a barrister for 20 years, so, you know, my accent got pummeled um, <laughs> as a result. And uh, I'm told that when I get drunk, uh, you can tell that uh, you may have taken the girl out of the council estate, but the council estate's not come out of the girl. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, think, do you think your path through the Labour Party has been different because of that? Because sometimes there's a sort of, oh, it's good, they've got a good strong northern accent or whatever, that's a good sort of labour, working class sort of person. Do you think it's, it's different, have you been treated differently? I, when I wasn't involved in public life, so I was an activist, you yeah. know. I, when I joined the party when I was 17, I, I was always an activist. I was always the one, you know, sorting out the ward meeting minutes and, you know, and going on the demos and, and all that and collecting the dues and, 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 uh, and knocking on doors and so on. I wasn't... I never went for, for elected office, so I never kind of put my head above the yeah. parapet. And I did, I went to a left-wing set, so I was doing lots of politics in my, in my legal work. And it was really only when I stood for Parliament and I was elected in Islington, and people have prejudiced ideas about Islington. So Islington is leafy lanes and Georgian squares and cappuccino bars, but it is also um, one of the constituencies with the worst levels of child poverty in the whole country. We have sort of 40% um, social housing and some of the worst deprivation. I mean, we have worse deprivation than practically any other, you know, any of the major cities. Um, and people just don't believe that because it all goes on behind closed doors. And so we are a mixed community. And in a way, it's a, I mean, it's my home. I live there. But it's also, I am kind of quite a good representative of that community because I have a mixed background and Islington yeah. is mixed. And people make assumptions about me just like they make assumptions about Islington. Yeah. And both of them are wrong. <laughs> so. and, and how do you deal with criticism? Because I had a conversation with you earlier this year. Um, you met my wife and she was, right. she asked you how, do you, you know, in public life when people are criticised. And your fairly blunt uh, response <laughs> was when people criticise you, your attitude was, fuck them. I think I said I don't give a flying fuck what they say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, 
<laughs> but you said if somebody who you, who you actually cared about or yeah, a friend or something yeah, said something. Yeah, yeah, is that, is that yeah. if you had to get more so used to that? I think politics? that's right. I think, there's a, I think the point is, is that you know, people who have a go at me on social media or frankly people who have a go at me in the newspapers or whatever, you know, they don't know me. They've never met me. You know, they're not my friend. They don't know, they don't know the heart and the soul of me. You know, I am just a symbol. I, I'm seen as a political thing. You know, I'm the overweight, you know, middle-class woman in the 1950s who's gobby and doesn't know her place. And they have a go at me because of that. And what's more, you know, well-off and still a socialist. You know, how outrageous is that? All of that, all of that seems to really offend people. <laughs> but they don't know me. And so it is water off a duck's back now. I mean, it didn't used to be. And I remember, I remember Harriet and, and how much how much she has put up with over the decades. And I couldn't understand how on earth she got the strength. But what happens is, frankly, you go through a pain barrier and then you realize they don't know you, this is not personal, this is just politics. Press the mute button and move on. And sometimes you've said and done things, maybe in the spur of the moment, and it's caused a huge storm. And the one that you're, I know you're sick of talking about is the flags. <laughs> Uh, you came and did a speech in Parliament and there were flags everywhere. Somebody put St George's flags everywhere. Sometimes that's like the thing that follows you in every story. Emily Thornberry, comma, who famously said, image from yeah, yeah. Rochester. Does, yeah, that, yeah. does that bother you or do you just... Do you well, wish you hadn't posted that picture? I think the thing was, was that, you know, I didn't mean offence by it. You know, I was taking lots of photographs of Rochester um, during the by-election. And in fact, if you look at the tweet, it says hashtag or something, you know, image, of, image from Rochester. And it's one of a series. Yeah. So I've also taken pictures of storm clouds, you know, gathering over Rochester Castle, uh, pictures of uh, the monster raving loony party, the, you know, um, some children had done their own posters, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And so this was one of the images. And I just, it just really struck me that there was this house and the guy had so many flags hanging outside his, his house and he couldn't see out the window. And it was a long time since the World Cup and it was just one of those very kind of remarkable images. You know, some people were genuinely offended. Some people possibly weren't and, and just wanted to kind of make a thing of it. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to cause offense and I felt terrible if I had. And, but also perhaps more importantly, I really believe that Nobody is bigger than the Labour Party. Nobody gets in the way of the Labour Party. We are a great historic movement of the left. Our country needs a Labour government, and I'm not getting in the way of that. And if the leader was of the view that my continued presence on the shadow cabinet was going to get in the way of a Labour government, then there was no way I was going to stay on the, sh on the front bench. So you, that was when you stepped down as shadow attorney general. But then when mm. Jeremy Corbyn came in, you were shadow employment minister, then quite soon because these things seem to come, reshuffle seem to come around at an astonishing rate of knots. There was a, you were Shadow Defence and then Shadow Foreign Secretary. When you did Brexit for a bit as you well. You did do Brexit for a bit as well, on, on, sort of on the side. <laughs> in my spare time. <laughs> Just, yeah. um, in that, during that time, when there were lots of other people who would say that the Labour Party means a lot to them and they'd, you know, they'd done their time in service and they were choosing not to mm. serve for Jeremy. Mm. What, what mm. made you step up and then, and then stay there? I think it probably comes from, from, from being an activist. I mean, I still, although I've been an MP for 13 years, I was an activist for a much longer than that. And that is where I come from. And, and I do believe that the Labour Party belongs to its members. And, and we had elections where the members had chosen Jeremy. I hadn't voted for Jeremy. You know, I had nominated him because I think it was important that he was on the ticket and for, for, for the electorate, you know, for our members to have a, a true choice. I mean, I supported Yvette. 
But you know, once Jeremy was elected, Jeremy was leader, and Jeremy was the choice of the members, and it was not the place of members of parliament to try and undermine the decision, the overwhelming decision of the membership. And so, and, and I felt that it was my job, and I think it's everybody's job, to make Jeremy the best leader that he can be, and politics is a team sport, and I wasn't going to leave, I wasn't going to take my ball away, I was going to help. You know. with, with hindsight, do you think it was the right decision that Jeremy won, or do you think that Yvette would have been a better leader? I mean, I had reservations about Jeremy. The biggest reservation I had was that he had no experience of being on the front bench. You know, because the, because the way that you do things on the back benches is, is different to the way that you have to do things on the front benches, and there is a level of pressure that's put on you on the front benches that he'd never experienced. And so, I, I mean, I said that to my members. I mean, I took big, big, I mean, bigger members, bigger meeting than this turned up with my members, right? And when we were doing the nominating, and I said that, I said, I love Jeremy dearly. I don't actually disagree with a great deal of his politics, but he doesn't have the sort of experience that I think we're going to need to have somebody who's going to be leader of the Labour Party. Now, I was wrong about that. And Jeremy's actually grown into the role and has, and has proved, proved me wrong. And I'd be the first to put my hands up and say, okay, I've been proved wrong. And where are you? Because quite often people who, do, who did choose to serve become Corbynistas and everyone else is a Blairite or a traitor or, or whatever. But in the, in the sort of the huge spectrum that the Labour Party now covers, if Jeremy Corbyn is one and Tony Blair's ten, where are you on that spectrum? I, I'm just a member of the Labour Party. I feel as though I come from the heart of the party. You know, and that's what I am, and I'm a Labour loyalist more than anything else. And I do believe we stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm sorry to sound, talking such cliches, but I do believe this. And I believe that, you know, that, that we, I have a calling. The party has a calling to be in power. We have to be in power. We can't change Britain. We can't take our place in the world without a Labour government. And the Labour Party without power is nothing. So let's, let's talk about one of the things which lots of people have been concerned about at the conference and being concerned about in and of itself, but also the impact it could have on Labour's chances. It, it's been striking that anti-Semitism hasn't been raised much in the, in the main conference. All it has on the fringe, and it feels, you know, there have been tensions and people have felt very uncomfortable. How do you feel now about the fact that the Labour Party spent the summer essentially arguing over whether or not the leader is racist, rather than setting out the, the programme for government that you were talking about? Yeah, I think it's very, very unfortunate. I think it's very unfortunate, and I think that we didn't deal with it well. Um, but I mean, I can, I mean, I can see how it's happened. You know, Jeremy is to his core. His identity is somebody who, who has spent all his life fighting racism. You know, I mean, the guy was arrested outside South Africa House. You know, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's been very much kind of what has been his motor, his driving force. And so, for him to be accused of, of racism or anti-Semitism, I think just went straight to his heart and really upset him and I quite understand why. I did did remind me of when, you know, Gordon Brown, who was like, you know, the son of the manse, you know, kind of, you know, northern Presbyterian Scottish Presbyterian, very kind of straight laced and, you know, and, and parsimonious and decent and everything else. Um, and he got accused of of, uh, of of misusing public funds and I don't know, paying for a cleaner that went to his brother's house. I don't, I don't know what the details were. Anyway, I do know that he was so upset about it and it went to the essence of who he was and he found it very difficult to get past the emotion and to deal with the issue in a way that he needed to in order to kind of deal with it. And I think that the fact that Jeremy struggled with this actually just shows a truth, which is our leaders are not gods. They're just men. They're just people. And nobody, 
you know, they're not, they're not, they're not perfection. And, and actually, I mean, the public are always really contradictory because, you know, the public want us to be perfect, but they want us to be authentic. And it's kind of like, how do you marry the two? Because in the end, you can't be. You can't they, be. They also, know? arguably, want someone who's the leader of a political party to not say things which look anti-Semitic or to look at what you, I assume, would think was an anti-Semitic mule and not notice that on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I, I, listen, I, I, think that, I think that another problem is that when you become leader of the Labour Party and when you are Jeremy Corbyn, and when you take the stand that you do, particularly in relation to Palestine and some of the platforms that he's been on, with some of the people that he's been on, who he agrees with on the issue of Palestine, or may not even agree, but, but, but you know, I mean, I've been on a platform, I'm told, with someone who has said the most appalling things on another occasion. There isn't actually a photograph of me on the platform with them. It's like one of these platforms where you get off, you make a speech, you get off, then somebody else gets on. But, you know, that's been in the papers that I was on a platform with somebody that you know, at some stage a couple of years before. I mean, really, I yeah. mean, it's like, this is real life. <laughs> this is real life. And when you're campaigning, then you sometimes will find yourself, you know, working with people who's... But it's not just who, it's not just who Jeremy agree. shared a platform with. When he said, when he talked about people not understanding English irony or the mural, that's him. It's not who he was associated with. That's his judgment call. But I think that what happens then is that, is that you come from a cause and you come from a background and then people start looking, and particularly in these days of social media, they, they start looking at your every move over the decades you know, before. And if you have made the slightest mistake, so if you have seen a picture on Facebook and you haven't looked at it properly and you think that this is an issue about free speech, you don't look at it properly and you don't look at the images of, uh, of the people sitting around the table. That are absolutely an anti-Semitic trope. How long did it take you to look at that picture and realise it was anti-Semitic? Well, I mean, I never saw it without all the, without all the hullabaloo. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. of course, my eye went straight yeah. to it. And, of course, you know, and I think, the, I think there's also a kind of a thing whereby, you know, we on the left believe, and indeed it has been our experience, that, that, that racists, that anti-Semites have always been those on the right. We have been out marching against the far right. It's not us that are the racists or the anti-Semites, but the, but the point is this, is that anti-Semitism changes in nature over, over time. And I think that it is quite understandable. I mean, you can see how the thread happens. There may be people on the fringes of our party who are virulently anti-capitalist, virulently anti-Israel. And you can see how the two can meld together into an anti-Israeli and then very closely getting into anti-Jewish. And you can end up with falling into anti-Semitic tropes which have changed in nature over the years. And so being on the left does not protect you from being anti-Semitic. You have to be careful, and, to be very careful. And what should Jeremy be very doing now? Aware. I think Jeremy has been through a great deal over this summer. I think that what we need to do is we need to... to because I think the other thing is, I think that, that the offence that has been caused, I think that some of the ways in which it has been expressed has been very unfortunate and I don't think has been accurate or right. But that isn't to say that the emotion that has caused people to speak in that way isn't a genuine one. Mm. I think that people, I mean, I, my, my kids have Jewish heritage, you know? From my, from my husband's family, there's a, we, there's a Jewish part of the family, so my children are strictly speaking Jewish. And, and they have friends who will never vote Labour again, you know, because we have lost the trust of the Jewish community and it's really, you can lose it like that and now we have to build it back because 
the values that we have are overwhelmingly attractive to very large numbers of Jewish people, and we should be their home. And we always have been, and some of the greatest people in the Labour Party have been of Jewish descent. And, you know, I mean, I have, you know, Jewish people in my office, who, you know, and in my, in my teams and the constituency. I don't want to lose them. And we have to be... We have to be aware of this, but I think that we have to be aware of this and we have to deal with it. And we also have to deal with those people who are using their virulent hatred of what the Israeli government is doing as a cover for anti-Semitism. Now, I am the first to criticize the appalling behavior of Netanyahu. And what he is doing to the Palestinian people is not only, you know, it's illegal, it's criminal, it's racist, you know, and we must stand up and say so. And the effect on, you know, the lives of, of, of Palestinian people, the way in which they're snuffing out hope for the Palestinian people, the killing of Palestinians is appalling, the racist laws that they're introducing into Israel, appalling. But that doesn't mean that I'm not a friend of Israel, because I believe that there should be a state of Israel but I don't believe that Netanyahu is doing any good for Israel, actually. I think that Netanyahu and his far-right government are undermining Israel. And I'm a friend, and I'm going to say so, because when friends are friends, they tell the truth. And that's, you know, and I believe that there should be a state of Israel, and it should, and it should be safe and secure, and there should be a viable, safe and secure state of Palestine next to it. And when I meet Israeli politicians, and I do, I always say, the first question I always ask is, where will Israel be in 10 years' time? Because they don't have an answer to that, because they're not thinking about it. You know, if they continue to build settlements in the West Bank in the way that they are and undermine the possibility of there being a Palestinian state, where are they going? Where is the Middle East going? Are we going to end up in a one state? If we end up in a one state, will it be a democratic state? If it's going to be a democratic state, it won't be the form of Jewish state which the founders of Israel wanted. You know, so these are the challenges which I think friends should be making. I met these guys from a kibbutz right down by Gaza, and they, took, they were two old boys, and they'd been, they'd been there, their family had been there since the foundation of Israel, and they were you know, of the great socialists that, that went in. And they, you know, there were many people who went into Israel believing that they could have a socialist utopia in Israel. And they were part of that stream. And they set up this kibbutz, this commune, overlooking Gaza. And they took me up this hill, and they showed me Gaza, and they said, there is misery there. It's shameful what's going on there. We don't like the fact that our country is doing this to these people. We used to work in the fields with these people. We used to work in the fields with, them, with the Palestinians. We used to pick oranges together. And now we don't see them, and we know what's going on there. And there doesn't seem to be anything we can do. And, and all we see of them is the, is the pollution coming down from Gaza because of the way in which the water systems are being polluted and the, and the seas are being polluted. And the Israeli government has paid for a water purification plant so that the water coming past Israel is pure, whilst the water in Gaza remains polluted. And we don't want this to be, and we want to live in peace with, the, with these people. I, I want to be friends with them. You know, there are good people in Israel who think like that. And they're my friends. And that's where I want Israel to go. Given that Jeremy Corbyn's also your friend, have you had a frank, honest conversation with him directly about all of this over the summer? Yes. Did you get the feeling that he was receptive to it? I got the feeling that he was deeply, deeply upset about it all. At any point had you considered your position or thought that others should? No. Okay. 
Let's move on to a less contentious issue of Brexit. Uh, <laughs> um, who do you agree with on a second referendum? John McDonnell or Keir Starmer? <laughs> or, or a third way, perhaps? Where do I start? I want to start, actually, in 2014. I want to start with We've only the got fact. Half an hour. I want to, okay. I'll go. I'll scamper through it. In 2014, this Brexit has all been about some psychodrama in the Tory Party, right? Their inability to be able to work out what they want to do on Europe. It is there are people there whose life, whose lifelong interest has been getting Britain out of the European Union, um, and they and they are in there with the, in the Tory Party. And they, you know, they've been banging on about Europe. And Cameron decided, I'm going to stop them banging on about Europe. What I'm going to do is I've got these wheeze. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a referendum. So I said to them, look, stop banging on about Europe. Let's have a referendum um, when we win the general election in, uh, in 2015. And, uh, and, and he thought, and we, you know, if you remember, we were supposed to win the general election in 2015. So he thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll just say that. That'll stop the Tory party fighting. We'll, we'll, we'll promise that. And then Labour will come in and that'll be fine. And we can, you know, let's, let's live to fight another day. That's what he thought. And that's why he didn't tell his civil servants to prepare for losing the referendum. And, and he went into it. And lo and behold, he won the general election. Then he had to have the referendum. And he thought, oh, well, I'll win that. I'll just stand on the steps of number 10 Downing Street and say, my people, it's in your interest to remain in the European Union. And they said, naff off, you know, and, and voted to leave. And then he left. And then we had the Tory party. And lo and behold, they continue to fight. They can't decide what it is that they want, you know, out of Brexit. We've had two years of them faffing around, incapable of being able to agree amongst themselves what they want, let alone how they're going to negotiate that with Europe. And we have lost the referendum. We campaigned to remain in Europe. We lost the general election. And from a position of, of opposition, we have done everything that we can to influence it in the right way. So we have said, I said two years ago at Prime Minister's Questions, we think that we should be in a customs union. There is no other way of having a soft border on Ireland. We said that there has to be an interim period you know, after the divorce and before the final settlement. There has to be two years. We said that as well. We said that we have to be close to the single market. We said that we had six tests. When Keir said he wanted to have six tests, Theresa May, um, which of quotes from the Tory party saying they could do it and Theresa May gets up and says oh I can do that I can deliver that she said that the next day so we said fine fine you reckon you can do it do it and we'll vote for it and we said we need to have an injection of democracy we want a meaningful vote and Keir said and I was sitting next to him that doesn't mean a vote at the last minute right a take it or leave it vote at the very last minute and they said no it'll be fine we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out we'll sort it out well, they lied. They lied and they lied and they lied and they lied and they've been fighting amongst themselves and they have never looked beyond themselves at what's good for our country, right? And then we're coming to the cliff edge and suddenly it's our fault. I mean, really? I wrote a piece in your, on Red Box a year ago and I said this was going to happen. I said it was going to happen. I said they'd never get anything agreed and I said they'd blame the Europeans and Labour. Guess what? That's what's going on. Right? So I just want to preface everything I have to say about that. Right? So we've got a government that can't govern. Now, I'm an old-fashioned girl. I think we need to kind of you know, drag things back to basic principles. When a government can't govern, what happens? You have an election and you have another government. You don't have an incompetent government. I mean, 
What's going to happen? She's going to like sit there with her coral painted fingernails, sitting there holding on to the steering wheel of the car and going, I know, I know, I know, I know we're heading for the cliff, but I refuse to hand over the controls because I'm in government and we have a fixed term parliament trap and we're all going over the cliff together because you won't agree with my little bit of paper. You know, I mean, that's if she comes back even with a little bit of paper with some kind of, you know, bit of nonsense on it, you know, and she will insist on staying in power. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think that the politics of this situation are that we have to stay firm and strong and, and focused, just as focused as they are on keeping in power. We have to stay focused on we are going for power. This government cannot govern this country. They need to be held to account, not just for Brexit, but for everything else they haven't been doing for the last couple of years. You know, try and get on a train recently uh, or anything else, go into a school or, you know, see the National Health Service or any of the other things they've manifestly failed on. And what we do is we say, we just call them out and we just say, you cannot govern, you have no deal, you cannot, you cannot govern our country, you cannot take us over the cliff, you cannot continue like this, we must have an election. And we just demand it. We demand it and the public will be with us. And we demand a general election and that's what we need. But don't oppositions always demand general elections? Not in a time like this. We, this is a constitutional crisis like we've never had before. We've never had a constitutional crisis like this before. But would... Would not changing the government in the middle of that only adds to the sense In the of... middle of it? We haven't even started. We <laughs> okay, haven't well, let's even go back. started. Let's go back to my original question then. So you're talking about a laser-like focus on the government. Actually, it feels a bit like the party's lost a bit of that focus this week as it's had an internal debate about the merits of a second referendum. I haven't, as you can see. So you... I, mean, I, I mean, like, I think we have to go for a general election. We need to prepare for power and everything we do has to be measured against are we getting closer to power? So when Keir gets a standing ovation in the hall earlier talking about a second referendum and campaigning for Remain, is he wrong to do that? No, what we, what, what we have agreed, and, you know, we do talk about these things, that we have this Brexit subcommittee, it doesn't leak, not very often, um, and, uh, and, we, you know, and we talk these things out amongst ourselves in a way that you don't see the Tory party doing. You know, and so we have been able to agree a way forward. Listen, it's hard for us, you know. We have people who voted Remain. We have people who voted Leave. We have constituencies that went both ways. Actually, we are representative of the country because of that. You know, we've got the Tory party deciding to take the extreme end of the, of the 52% and the Liberals going off after the 48 And we are trying to hold our country together. That is a responsible thing to do and a statesmanlike thing to do. That's what we've been trying to do. And, of course, we get bombed from both sides as a result. But what we have, been, what we have agreed is that... You know, we need to have that injection of democracy. She hasn't given us that injection of democracy if she doesn't give us a meaningful vote. So we need to have something else. Our preferences for a general election, nothing is swept off the table, and that includes a referendum. But we are not to be distracted from having, from having a general election into some segue into the people's vote. So you don't think there should be a people's vote? You think... I think there should be a general election. I think that's but the best you... people's the, vote that you could have. But that's a general election for the Labour government to deliver Brexit. That's not so that Labour can come in and yeah. say, we yeah. want to... Remain. So I think that what we have to do is, I mean, I think... So there's no circumstances, you think, where Labour would take Britain back into the EU? I think that... I think there are... I think there are deeply anti-democratic forces around the world and in Britain too. And I am not going to be part of that. I think that we had a referendum. We went up and down the country. I went up and down the country and I said to people, this is really serious. You have to make a decision and we will abide by the decision that you make. So and we said that and we said it solemnly and we stick to it. So now, the debate, if we had the debate like, now but, about but, leaving second referendum on the table, all options on the table, yeah. three cheers for Keir, 
that's part of the anti-democratic forces. No, it? no, no. It's trying to no, overturn no, no. the referendum. Because, no, because, because we have to have some... Because, because OK, you lose, you, you, lose the demo, you, lose the, you lose the referendum, but you don't then just give the Tories a free pass to do whatever the frig they like with our country. That's why we have to have another injection of democracy. That's why we need to have a meaningful vote. If we can't have a meaningful vote, then we'll have a general election. If we can't have a general election, no, you know, we haven't swept any options off the table. But, you know, I've, I am somebody who thinks, where do you want to go and how are you going to get there? Right? For those people who want to remain in the European Union, then you know, we need to get people to vote for it. And, and in a time when you can't really trust polls, and frankly, there aren't really any polls that are that great for people who want to remain. I mean, I understand people's frustration. Two years on, with all the chaos and all the arguments that are coming to the fore, you would expect, perhaps, for, for the polls to be changing and for there to be 70 or 80% of the public in favour of remaining in the European Union. But we don't see that. In fact, people have got dug in. And I think one of the reasons they've got duck in is not because people have said it, but in the, in the debate about Europe, it's what people hear. And I think people have been hearing the Remainers saying, we're only leaving the European Union because the public are stupid, because they're racist, because they've been lied to, because they've been manipulated. And they think, you're talking about me. I'm none of those things. I want to leave the European Union because I want to leave the European Union. Get on with it. Do you... If there was a second referendum, would you still vote Remain? Absolutely. So, can you understand then why people would be suspicious of an incoming Labour government then trying to reverse the outcome of the referendum? I think that what should we should have is we should have a general election and on our manifesto we should say that we will abide by the results of the referendum. We cannot obviously leave in current circumstances. We need to extend Article 50. Okay. Let me preempt your next question. I don't know how long that would take. But, uh, but we need to extend Article 50 and essentially turn up in Europe and say, the grown-ups have turned up now. Let's sit down and talk. Okay. So, so given that we've... We sort of have touched on it, but given that we've not really touched on your, your day job, if you like, what are your chances, do you think, of being sitting at Boris's old desk in the Foreign Office? It's completely up to Jeremy. I mean, Jeremy will decide who's, who, who, who fulfills what role in the oh, government. No, I, meant, I, meant, I mean, in the terms of um, how likely is it, do you think, there will be a general election before March I think there's going to be a general election, and I think we're going to win. Yeah. I mean, you, you should all really be clapping that one, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs>
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I think we've got time for sort of 10, 15 minutes of questions. I just wanted to make a point that is uh, to, to Matt, actually that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has a history of fighting anti-Semitism more than any other parliamentarian in our parliament and more than, most, more than most people in this country. So why don't you ask a question about that instead of asking Emily, who is not Jeremy Corbyn, to answer questions about Jeremy Corbyn, who is not Emily? Well, if, if Jeremy Corbyn... If Jeremy Corbyn... Try as I might, Jeremy Corbyn tends not to engage with what he calls the mainstream media, so it's quite difficult for me to ask him the question. However... However, if I did get the chance to ask him a question, I would acknowledge the fact that he's campaigned on anti-Semitism for a long time, but he does seem to have a record of saying things which, to some people, sound anti-Semitic. And that's either poor judgment of his, or he needs to address the concerns that people have. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. But I think when the Jewish community is campaigning outside Parliament, accusing the leader of the opposition of being racist, he should answer questions about it. What about the Jews who are campaigning in his favour? Mm. Are they not real Jews? That's not what I've said at all. So what, I should ask him questions about it or I shouldn't ask him questions about it? I appreciate, I appreciate your... This isn't... My friend, my Jewish friend. Yeah. Well, that's good and I'm glad. And you carry on campaigning for Jeremy Corbyn. The media are ignoring that because they have, have, you know, they have the same right to speak and the same right to be heard as anybody. Well, yeah, and that's why I've asked Ebony some questions and she's very kindly answered them. The lady at the front. Uh, thank you. Claire Gamble from uh, Stockton North is... Um, the lady at the front. Just to reiterate, actually, I came to an event about Emily Thornbury, not about anti-Semitism. And so my question for Emily is, um, is around foreign policy. And do you feel, actually, that under the current circumstances, that there can be a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine? Because my worry is we, we're just moving further and further yeah, away yeah, from that. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, and I think you expressed concerns that we all feel. And you know, every time I go to Israel and Palestine, I know I get this sick feeling as I, you know, land in, in Tel Aviv, you know, this feeling that as I land, what I'm going to see is going to be worse and that it's going to be increasingly difficult uh, for there to be a two-state solution. I visit villages, Palestinian villages that are under threat of demolition. And the next time I go, they've gone. And I see more and more shining settlements on illegally built, on, uh, on the West Bank, and that's what urges me on. And, and I think the other problem is, is that there is no peace initiative. Um, I think, when I, last time I went, I went out to the Palestinian Authority and they were having their meeting of their legislative um, body, which is the first time they'd met for 20 years, but they were having a, a big meeting and I met people around the edges and they said, you know, waiting for the Americans to come back with some peace plan on the Middle East has been like waiting for Godot. You know, they just, they just have never come up with anything and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and losing, losing more and more hope. And, and actually now, in a kind of weird way, maybe the Americans showing their hand in this way and showing themselves to be so pro-Israeli is, um, is kind of helpful because at least people now know where they stand. 
But the truth is, is that there has to be an international body of some sort that steps up and helps to facilitate talks, because at the moment there is no peace process and the, and the settlements continue and the Palestinian villages continue to be pulled down and the children of the West Bank continue to suffer from occupation. Hello, can I ask Emily what she thinks of the government's handling of the position of Nazina uh, Ghazari Ratcliffe in Iran and what her views are? And also, what is the Labour government going to be doing about the situation for her and for Iran? So Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe um, was, as people know, a woman who's now been held by the Iranians for some three years. Um, and she was accused of, of training journalists stroke spying. Um, and uh, she's a woman of, uh, of, of mixed heritage. Um, she's a British citizen, but she's also an Iranian citizen. And she was uh, visiting her family when she was arrested. And the... Um, and her case was made so much worse when Boris Johnson went before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and hadn't read his brief and simply reiterated what the Iranians had said, their, their false and untrue accusations, and gave it the legitimacy of being, coming out of the mouth of the Foreign Secretary. How on earth can he be Foreign Secretary? I mean, you know, we had seen him behaving in a silly and reckless way, um, undermining our relationships with countries around the world and making us a laughing stock. But in that one moment, we saw him, and it was his fault, you know, specifically, there, is no, there was no way around it, of actually endangering a British citizen abroad. And I tried to get him to apologise. And he did one of these apologies that my husband gives sometimes. <laughs> which is, uh, um, if I upset people, you know, when you, like, when you upset him, he goes, if I upset you, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for upsetting you. Um, and so his apology was, uh, if, uh, if people misunderstood what I said, I apologise. I've spoken to the um, Iranian ambassador on two or three occasions about this, and I know that Jeremy has too. Um, and, and the important thing, the difficulty with Iran is that, is that it isn't a, a state which is a, in any way um, something which we would recognise in the way in which we do states. You know, there are different forces in charge of different parts of Iran. The, there are sort of the more extreme elements are those who are responsible for the courts and for the, and for the prisons and so on. And then those who you will see in the, you know, in the foreign office or, or as ambassadors come from a, in, in Iranian terms at least, a more liberal wing. And it's as if the two branches don't speak. And that's the, that's the frustration is getting through. There are other issues about our relationship with Iran. I mean, clearly we need to be on their side when it comes to continuing to support the Iranian nuclear deal, which is a way in which we are stopping Iran developing a nuclear deal, but that is that we, we are to trade with Iran. Because America has pulled out of it, not only will America not trade with Iran, that doesn't matter so much because America doesn't do much trade, but their sanctions regime is such that any company that America trades with will get sanctions, and that will have a chilling effect on the commercial sector full stop with Iran. And, and the so-called more liberal elements in Iran will, will be undermined by Trump walking away from the Iranian nuclear deal. So all of this, I'm afraid, is bad news. Hi, Emily. Um, a question not with your current brief, but knowing your deep knowledge of the legal system, and I don't know if you've had time to read The Secret Barrister since it was published. Anyone who has, I'm sure, will share deep concerns I have and so many other people that have read it. I just wondered what the awareness is within, you know, the legal brief within the Labour Party at the moment and what plans you're putting in place, the innocent tax, the terrible changes that have been made, mainly under Chris Grayling. I know he's not there now. Just some reassurance that we're, you're acutely aware of that and plans are in place, really. 
One of the things that always struck me about Jeremy, actually, was that he didn't come from a legal background, but that his commitment to legal aid and to proper representation in the courts and fairness um, was always one where whenever I went to any, when I first came in and I was like, I'd only been, you know, I'd just come out of the courts and I was like in Parliament. So I would be in these meetings um, as a lawyer very much. And Jeremy was always there. And there is this leadership, I think, and this commitment to, there's no point in us having rights if we can't exert those rights in court. If you can't make sure that your rights are abided to by holding, holding people to account, there is no point in having them. And when the, um, you know, when we, when, we, when we set up a safety net, the welfare system, you know, part of that was, you know, was benefits, was the National Health Service, but also part of that was legal aid and was making sure that people had the right to be represented in court so that when, their land, when your landlord is chucking you out unfairly, you know, when you are being treated badly, when you are not having your rights enforced, then you can get representation. And I spent 20 years essentially representing people who, who couldn't talk like me, but who, were in, but who were being treated really badly in a time of stress, and they needed to have someone to, talk, to speak up for them because otherwise they were not going to be, there was no equal playing field. You know, the other side, the state would come in with a barrister like me, and this poor person would end up, you know, having to represent themselves. I now very often find myself, people come to see me because they know I used to be a lawyer, so my constituents come and see me, and I say, I can't represent you in court, but I'll write a letter for the judge. So they go along to court with a little bit of cream paper with, you know, with a crest on the top, and they put that in front of the judge, and that's me being an advocate for them. It shouldn't be like that. I've got loads of stuff to do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not fair on them either. No, it's not right. Well, let's take a question from Sam over here. There's a very shouty, at times, aggressive argument going on, partly at this conference and partly elsewhere, about women's rights, trans rights, gender self-identification, and where politics should go on that. Yeah. It's, an, it's a debate a lot of people are too scared to get involved with very yeah. often because of the shouting. Could yeah. you just say, set out your yeah. starting point and yeah. how you okay. see it? So my starting point is that I'm a feminist and that I'm a feminist of a certain age. And I was involved in the, in the women's rights movement in the late 70s, early 80s, when, you know, we, when, when we had our discussions <coughs> as women-only meetings and, 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 and we were talking about the importance of us as women and what we our own in our own experiences in contrast to men and that's kind of where my background is and so i found i found the trans debate quite challenging talking to people and listening to people when they're not shouting um what really struck me actually was that what i have learned from from feminism is 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 that there are people who are marginalized and people who are treated badly and actually the feminist movement is big enough you know, we're big enough and we're bigger hearted enough. And, and if someone believes that they have been born as a man, but they are a woman, we have space. And uh, sometimes people say, well, what about all women shortlist? There's gonna be a whole lot of men turning up in dresses and insisting on, just like, really? Really? You know, let's like leave it to the good sense of local parties. You know, they will decide who they're gonna have on their shortlist and who they aren't. And they will know people who are, you know, who are genuinely struggling with their identity and people who can contribute to Parliament and who will be a good representative of their community. You know, I think that we really can be a little bit more relaxed about it. And yes, I think it's right. I think that it's desperately sad to see the way in which it has become so aggressive. Um, and I think that we, we need to step down a bit. Gentlemen there, and then we'll go to the lady at the back in the red. Hi, Emily. I'd like to ask you um, a question about the situation in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm uh, a member in Northern Ireland, and um, as you probably know, 
the Labour Party does not stand candidates. Um, and that's a major issue for uh, the democratic system and human rights issue, some of us think. I'd be very interested in your point of view on this because you speak with such common sense and such good critical analysis of any topic you address. Just a moment ago, um, I had a word with John McDonnell walking along the corridor, and he confirmed for me again that as a Labour Party member, I'm expected to vote for the SDLP, an anti-choice party. So Northern Ireland has got the worst uh, record on women's reproductive rights in Europe, just about, and it doesn't have any Labour Party representation. Can you join the dots? I do have very sympathy for you. I do understand where you're coming from on this. I do. I mean, we've had conversations about this before. You know I'm, I, I'm sympathetic. It isn't just that, uh, that women in Northern Ireland, British citizens in Northern Ireland, um, have to go to the mainland in order to have an abortion and pay for it privately. Um, or they can now go to the South. <laughs> you know, I never thought that we'd see the day when British people have to go to the South of Ireland for an abortion. I mean, really? This is what's going to happen now? And the, or that, uh, or that a, a gay couple that have married in the, on the mainland of Britain or in the south of Ireland won't be treated as a married couple when they go to the north. I mean, what is the matter? You know, I actually, I think that, the, that those, um, those in senior positions within, uh, within politics in Northern Ireland are letting down the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland who I think have moved on a long way and they're not getting proper representation at the moment. I just think that they are, you know, 20, 30 years behind. And I think that actually sometimes one of the things I do think is that kind of the one thing these old men all agree on is that uh, women shouldn't have control of their bodies. Can you see a time where Labour would stand? I don't, it's, 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 I'm afraid it is something which I know is an ongoing debate and I know that you keep campaigning on it, but our sister party is the SDLP. If you join, if you're in the swamp, you know, we're in the swamp, I think I get the sense you've said everything you're going uh, to on that. Yeah, yeah. Lady <laughs> at the back. Thank you for sharing your story, number one. My question is, when I, asked, uh, when I went to a fringe meeting about, about the port of Dover, and I asked the question, which will ask, I will ask you, when we, we have a just-in-time philosophy for food and all sorts of other things in our society, what will happen to the food banks in Blackpool or elsewhere when we leave Europe? Does anyone discuss things like that? Because that's what it comes down to in the end. They can't stockpile food. Yeah, I mean, actually, part, part of my story is I used to work at the Port of Dover. Um, I worked on Tanzan Torreson as a... I used to clean out the loos, uh, which is quite a job. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was... So I know it well, and I know that there's no great big lorry park. <laughs> and uh, I know that there is nowhere that we're going to be able to put all the lorries that will need be needed to be there if we're not a part of a customs union. And, uh, and what will happen is that, that we will basically be using the motorway all the way up as far as Canterbury, um, in order for, for, for lorries to be waiting to be checked before they can leave. And indeed, for lorries, you know, there will be the same thing in Calais um, with lorries trying to get over the other way. And people have got brushed this aside and said, oh, no, no, it won't happen. You know, and you keep hearing these Brexiteers saying that. It will happen. It will happen. And, and you're right that when there, if there is a crisis, then you're right. You know, those people, those of us with resources, you know, those of us, frankly, an awful lot of these Brexiteers, you know, will, won't be affected by this. It will be those on the margins who will fall under as a result, you know, and that is the worry. That is the huge worry, one of the many worries of this, of course.
Okay, I think it's going to have to be the, our last question, I'm afraid, because Emily needs to go and prepare herself for a speech. So I'll take the last question. Okay, this is for both Emily and Matt, which probably works for our last question. We had the post-war consensus, and then we had the liberal slash neoliberal consensus, depending on how you want to describe it. And now we're in what I would call the politics of digital dissensus. It's very fragmented, and people are shouting very loudly, as we heard on other issues. What can politicians and the media do to bring countries back together. It's not just Britain, it's not just Brexit, it's not just America, it's not just Trump, it's across the whole of the global north that we've got people who are fighting against each other and talking against each other. Wow. How long have I got? <laughs> Four minutes. <laughs> Actually, that is some of the things, that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about in my speech. Um, so, you know, I don't want to you know, put any of you off. It's going to be 2.45, do come in and, uh, and hear it. Um, but, I mean, I think that's right. I think this is the challenge. And I think, you know, as I say, some of the things that I've been touching on, you know, about, uh, about anti-democratic forces, about the rise of racism, about this idea, this fear of the other, this, this fear that there, is, that there is no point in talking to one another that I know I will only listen to people who are like me. I'm not prepared to be involved in debate. I am, you know, this, this whole thing about where do you get your news from, you know, if, on Facebook, you just get news from those who send you news and therefore you don't need to, to be challenged by anything else. These are things I think that we need to be profoundly concerned about because what if we're wrong? <laughs> that's the point, you know, what if we're wrong? We need to be able to listen to one another and we need to have, that's the essence of our democracy. And so I do think that this is something which is, which is very worrying indeed and, I, and it, you're quite right to raise it. Um, but I do go on about this quite a lot in my speech. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I would agree with you that you, know, you do need a broad uh, range of voices and politics to be done in a less um, shouty way. So I think I'm contractually obliged to say the way you get that is by buying and reading the Times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my huge thanks uh, to Emily, because we've covered a huge amount of um, oh, ground. Thank you to all of you uh, for coming and do, um, do keep signing up to the Times Redbox as well. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from the Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>